Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Mandy, how are you? Hi, Aditi, really well, thank you. How about yourself? Oh gosh, it seems like ages. And do you know what I heard recently, which I wanted to confirm with you? Recently, I heard that you guys don't have a Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. On the West Coast, there is no Starbucks. I think I just did a quick search online to have a look. I think we have a few on the East Coast, but where we are in the wild, wild West, and no Starbucks. Yeah, which is just as, that is just just mind boggling. <laughs> just as well for my waistline, because when I lived in Indiana for a year in the middle of winter, I used to get their venti eggnog lattes. And then one day I accidentally happened to see how many calories were in one of those bad boys and I, I realised why I was putting on like five kilos <laughs> a week. So, yeah, it's just as well they're not here. Oh, my gosh, that's just so incomprehensible, <laughs> US Americans, because, you know, everything is revolves around Starbucks. So um, just an interesting little tip. Yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on, April is OT month. So I just wanted to give a shout out to OT as a profession and let every, everyone know what we do, because surprisingly, Mandy, it's been 100 years in this profession, but people still don't know what we do. And what we really do is work with individuals with disabilities or those who have injuries to rehabilitate them back so they can engage in occupations that are meaningful. So a baby, it might be, you know, playing with toys, or it might be a hand injury where a person's trying to do just everyday activities. So we work in a plethora of arenas. But um, there's, it's also Autism Awareness Month, right, Mandy? Yeah, that's right. World Health Organization, um, 2nd of April is World Autism Awareness Day and the month of April is Autism Awareness Month. So around the world generally there is a lighted up blue campaign and um, at least here in Perth we do a little bit at fit by having um, all our stuff wear blue for a week and blue balloons and lots of little events with COVID on it's not as big an event but um, I imagine if everybody looks at autism speaks they'll look uh, they'll be aware of the campaigns that are happening I know they have a lovely motto this year of be kind which I really love for so many different reasons so yeah for all of us that work and some of us who live with autism um, this is just a month to um come together and uh, yeah and support each other in this very challenging um, disability. Thank you no definitely and I love the kindness that actually should apply to everybody that should be every day right? <laughs> I think it's just such a good thing to live with right now with everything that's going on but yeah when it comes to autism in particular you know of course the student the kindness should be already prevailing with them but it's the parents that live with this the parents and the families that live with autism this the the heartbreak and grief and challenge and sometimes you know exhortation as well but I feel like being kind to them and uh, understanding of their journey and what they're living with day in day out is um, yeah really really good motto to to apply in April and then every month thereafter <laughs> exactly so um, again, hello, everybody out there. Welcome to our 13th episode. I cannot believe we have lasted this long, Mandy, you, know, <laughs> you and I. 
<laughs> Lucky number 13, yeah. Exactly. So um, this episode, we will be addressing challenging behaviors on telehealth. You know, telehealth has gained so much traction, partly because of the pandemic and partly because it's, it's very effective for certain populations in reaching the poorer populations or various areas that may not ordinarily receive therapy services. But we, you know, as therapists, were sort of thrust upon this uh, new platform in quite a frenzy. I remember that. Actually, I was actually providing um, telehealth prior to the pandemic. But I've talked to so many OTs and therapists out there who are so anxious about their sessions, especially initially they were, uh, on how they were going to manage it, especially in pediatrics, you know, because in the clinic setting, we have so many tools we can look into and, and sort of redirect or you know distract and then try to get them back but when you're in telehealth everything's so here's my favorite word linear mandy like it's <laughs> it's really hard to manage so many therapists feel very unprepared in managing challenging behaviors online so i thought in this episode um, mandy and i could really discuss the pitfalls of telehealth and uncover some of the basics of reinforcement motivation and offer very tangible easy to do activities or strategies to solve your student engagement challenge on telehealth. And also I wanted to share a resource that in lieu of OT month, I'm actually offering a complimentary copy of my ebook, 25 Tips to Increase Student Engagement, which is available on Amazon. And we have another exciting resource, a deeper dive webinar that's coming up on April 20th at 6 p.m. CST or 5 p.m. Eastern, which, Mandy, you'll have to calculate. What is that in Australian time? Oh, I don't I can't keep up with the time differences. <laughs> I know. I think it's about 12 hours now because we... 13. Um, I, I think it was 14 before and now it's back. Oh, 13. Back, there we go. Back to 13. So um, it's, it's only 5 a.m. in the morning for me. All good. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're so inclined please join us <laughs> um we will be discussing telehealth strategies on telehealth share which is the website and the company that will be hosting our webinar for ot's you will be receiving ceu credit and of course abs are very welcome to join in and learn some aspects of ot in that interprofessional educational approach and oh goodness i feel like i'm talking so much today that follows into our shout out for Dr. Kaysen, who is the owner of telehealthshare.com. And she holds a doctorate health science degree in OT. And she is also uh, the past chair of American Telemedicine Association for Telerehabilitation Special Interest Group. She is a senior editor for International Journal of Telemedicine rehabilitation, gosh, mouthful, and has <laughs> authored many articles. And she is the one who has asked us to do this uh, deeper dive on her website. So very grateful. I'm very excited to um, be part of her organization. Okay, Mandy, <laughs> let's get to the meat of it. So, you know, OT's definitely struggled with telehealth, just from the management of client standpoint. Uh, what about ABA? Did that really happen for you guys or not really oh my goodness yeah I mean I think everybody that is working with kids with challenges via screen is challenged for a multiple of reasons but especially if you're very used to having close proximity to kids and really engaging with them and literally high-fiving them and really 
being, you know, up close and personal, all of a sudden having, you know, a screen between you really is a major barrier. And um, yes, so I will say everybody in the world is challenged virtually, but we've all had to make it work, haven't we? So um, yeah, I've, I've, from my perspective, you know, one of the things that is so important when you're working with children with challenges, autism or other is, you know, the quality of uh, the environment that the student is in and uh, the level of distractibility in the environment, how well they're sitting and engaging, um, you know, the type of seat they're sitting in, you know, how they're holding their pencil, all of those things which are like, you know, times 10 complicated when you have a screen. And then you add in, for instance, internet connection and dropouts. Mm -hmm. When you combine things or like touching, oh my goodness, you know, I have um, this beautiful little boy that I work with and he is just one of those kids that clumsy is a sort of a non-behavioural term but like drops everything, knocks things. Um, so he reaches down to get something off the floor and he's, you know, the screen has collapsed and that, so, you know, <laughs> I'm sure everybody that's listening to this <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. It's so hard to get momentum when you can't reach out and, you know, manipulate the environment with which you're working with. So, yeah, I must admit, I, you know, I have a lot of patience. I have lived with a daughter with severe autism for 17 years and, um, you know, I have patients that I never thought I would be able to call upon. But there have been times, I tell you, <laughs> with kids that are having, you know, behavioural episodes over the screen where, you know, I have been pushed to my uh, limits I think and um, I think I've become a, a lot better as a result um, and developed some strategies that I think have, have really changed the way that I work virtually. Well I, have, I will tell you from an OT standpoint you know we really look at the environment con- context with every client mm. so I can absolutely empathize with <laughs> that. <laughs> that creates so much anxiety for a um, lot of us OT so when I first started telehealth just about two years ago I was petrified. I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Uh, You know, and I definitely had some challenges. And so I'm going to just give you a little case study of some aspects that occurred with this made up name and student here. Lena is a teenage student with ASD. She's nonverbal, displays some aggressive behaviors, definitely has some sensory needs, is nonverbal. Oh, Harry said that. Uh, So she uses a device. And can be very self-injurious at time and injures others. So when the therapist comes on telehealth, what she would do is just either turn off the computer or walk away. Mum would sit there with Lena to help, but you know the goals were very sort of self-care based. But even before we got to self-care, we had to engage her in like fine motor activities, for example, and she would just refuse to do anything. And when I felt like when the demand got too high in her mind, that's when she would start pushing or hitting mum. And then the session would be over because we were like, okay, you know, we have to regroup. So that's sort of the case study I wanted to present today and mm-hmm. get your input. Excellent. Yeah, that's certainly at Fit Learning. There are a period of time. I know around the world there's other clinics of ours that are purely virtual, but for a period of time we did work virtually as well. And I think, you know, there are some students that we assessed, you know, just weren't really candidates for for virtual sessions. Um, So not there are many children that we work with with autism and some challenging behaviour. But there are, you know, some candidates that have severe and challenging behaviour where the parents don't have enough support. 
and of course there are there are you know ways of working with them but you know when you have really dangerous behavior that's a very difficult thing to attend to virtually and I just reach out to anybody out there who is living with that type of behavior and trying to work virtually with them because it's very very challenging but you know my um, general standpoint is that prior to in engaging with a student of that nature if you haven't had them in the clinic previously is to begin with parent training because you can put parents in a very very difficult situation where they're going to strengthen and worsen behaviors because they don't have the skills to take instruction from a therapist over a computer screen and they don't know how to respond and um, that puts them in a very difficult situation because you know you often can get what behavior analysts will call an extinction burst where you know behavior gets worse for a period of time and you know you're dealing with parents that are already under a lot of stress so yeah generally my first hot tip of the day is to begin any intervention like that with parent training and to provide them with support and also cues of yeah how to respond in the moment and having you know often when I'm working with parents I will um, develop a set of gestures (laughs) for like a a thumbs up or a thumbs down or like you know you know that sign where you go you know across (laughs) you know cutting the neck which is like this is a time to you know to stop what you're doing there so yeah just initially having some consultation with parents talking about what behavior is going to come up training them to establish an environment that is free of distractions and not not things easy within reach is really really important so that's that's my tip number one is to engage with the parent and provide some training to them as to how the session is going to go oh lovely I, I think a lot of OTs I know I've, I've done that when we transitioned mm. so in this situation that you know we didn't have the option because of yes the pandemic. yeah so we were working with her in the school setting so in person and then we had to transition. And in the school setting, it was a little bit easier, but we still had some work refusal uh, for sure because she was not, in my mind, motivated. She was a sensory seeker, and all she wanted to do was play with uh, sensory activities like, you know, sand, like any texture. She loved that. She wanted to turn the faucet on and just play with the water, that sort of thing. So... When we transitioned, it was like we did consult with mom initially and we were like, how is this going to happen? <laughs> and no, nobody knew. So I think that's a really good idea is to the gestures. I love that idea. We didn't we didn't really talk about that. But motivating her was really hard. So OTs really look at motivation and self-determination theory, which really looks at sort of the intrinsic, extrinsic aspects of motivation. And I and we're all very aware of positive reinforcement. But I think, you know, when you have a student who just wants to engage in this sort of sensory activity and nothing else, we get stumped. I know I get stumped. I'm like, oh my gosh, where do I start? So yes, please enlighten me. Generally as behavioralists, we look at Um, motivation being something either a process of deprivation in other words um, to make a student more motivated is to deprive them of something that they like or um, to satiate which makes them less likely to want something so that motivation is something you can create in the environment that increases or reduces 
something, a reinforcer as effectiveness. So, I mean, a very simple example might be, you know, if you want a child to request water is, um, you know, to give them some salty food. So that would make them much more motivated to to ask for um, for water. That's a simple example. But um, in terms of things that are really, you know, a, a student likes, literally by depriving them of something that they really like for a period of time, you know, is going to make them more likely to want to engage in work to get it. So, you know, this is again where parent training can come in to say, you know, if uh, in this case the student, the things that she really likes to work for as much as possible, you know, prior to my session on that day, can you ensure she doesn't have free access to it, that it's given to her contingent on, you know, something. That's one thing. And that in particular that comes to iPad time. So, you know, if you, I mean, iPads are very useful reinforcers um, to use to something that you can deprive a child of and keep from them so that they really want to work for them and they're excited to work for them. So, um, yeah, in this case, you know, looking at those things that she was interested in, making sure she doesn't have free access to them so they become valuable. And that is one way of creating motivation. So uh, it's this is somewhat of a pause button that I have to put in yeah. here because I know what OTs are probably thinking. So let's just say the water. Really, Lena really liked to play with water. Mm-hmm. And if I make that contingent on her doing something, then in an OT standpoint, it's a sensory regulation sort of need. Like she needs that to attend or reinforce herself. And so it seems a bit harsh to not give her that. You know, it's sort of like, do that? Do I do that as an antecedent or a consequence? I think that's going to be the quandary for a lot of OTs. My view is that when you're working with a child like Lena, people are obligated not to take the easy path that is like a short-term goal, but look at, you know, long-term goals for a student like that. And sometimes in the short term, there has to be a short amount of discomfort. So like everybody everywhere in life, you know, it's not always going to be comfortable for you. There's going to be periods of discomfort so that you can learn. And really that's a lot of learning is about first work, then play. And that's really what it is in behavior analysis. You know, we call it the pre-make principle, but um, I think our grandmother's, you know, it was called the grandmother's principle. The you know, First you eat your peas and then you get your ice cream. And, you know, most places in life, that's real life. In other words, you know, you don't go to get work, get your wages up front and then do the work. You know, everywhere in life, just about, you know, you have to engage in some response effort to get something. And if if students are just allowed to have free access to things all of the time, you know, it doesn't create an environment that motivates them to work. Think about it. What you're trying to get their students to be successful in is school. And school is... You work, then you get recess. You know, you work, then you get lunch. You work, then you go home. And you have to create an environment where students are comfortable having things removed from them for periods of time to engage in, you know, appropriate activities and wait to have things handed back to them. So, um, you know, I don't think it's just behaviour analysts that will say that that is a good strategy in life. And also to have someone that is instructable because they need to be instructed to learn and tolerate things being removed from them for short periods of time initially so that they can, you know, with the absence of aggressive and challenging behaviour, 
so that people feel comfortable working with them and parents can engage with them and teach them incidentally throughout their day. So, you know, if we provide a lot of things up front to people without, you know, having to engage in any effort to get them, it becomes almost impossible to work with them. And so it sounds a lot harder than it is because you can start with very, very small response efforts. So what do you mean by small response efforts? Well, literally, you know, with some kids that are not used to having items removed from them or not having free access to them, you literally might just reinforce them for allowing them allowing you to touch it. Um, not now virtually, that's hard, I know, but like short periods of time, like literally put your iPad or, you know, take that item, put it to the side, really nice work, give me a virtual high five, now you get it back. So, you know, like just tolerating small removals of items with the absence of challenging behaviour allows you to teach and then reinforce which is I guess the next question that you would have to me if we can create an environment you know if you think about it um, think about a time this is I'm just thinking about what my partner will do if I've had a late night doing a podcast which is tonight <laughs> um, <laughs> you know he'll say the coffee machine is on and um, <laughs> when you get up out of bed there's like you know your favorite coffee on the desk like that's you know, that's deprived, that's, that's right, that's creating motivation to get me up out of bed. And I don't think anybody yeah. would say that's, that's cruel or mean or depriving anybody of anything. It's just putting something in between asking for a behaviour and then delivering something. And when you create an environment that the deprivation of that thing or is contingent on doing a behaviour, then you can increase somebody's motivation. If they get it for free all of the time, then, you know, they're unlikely to want to do anything for it. So let me tell you what we did with Lena, mm. uh, because it sounds somewhat familiar, because it was on telehealth, but we ended up, and obviously it's easy to get access to water because you know, she's at home. Uh, it was a, so we just picked some sensory um, activities that she liked. You've probably seen that like little slippy, it's like a water-filled snake. Have you seen that? It's, it's yeah. a sensory toy. Yeah, so she loved that, and that was one of her favorite toys. And we just had mum put it in a... Um, a box and she only had access to that during telehealth sessions there you go so i guess there was somewhat of the deprivation i mean i'm sure she had access to other things that were sensory because we knew she liked that that worked for her but whenever we'd ask her to do something if it was really simple i think which is what you were getting at like the response effort like um you know we had pom-poms that you had to put in a bottle she would do that and get access but if I up the ante at all, she would just turn the video off. <laughs> yeah. And or walk away. Mm -hmm. So, and I know a lot of therapists are dealing with that uh, on telehealth. So, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Or what do you do in that situation? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I mean, there are lots of strategies that we use to increase small levels of demand in, in behavioral terms. One thing that I can think of at the top of my head, we call it high P, which is like ask her to do lower level tasks. So like put it in the bottle, put it in the bottle and now do this. So you've asked her to do two easy things or a few easy things followed by a harder task. And this is called behavioral momentum, whereby you reinforce easier tasks followed by a harder task and then reinforce the completion of that harder task. Um, you can introduce choice into the scenario whereby she chooses which activity she does first if you can provide some sort of cue to a student as to 
you know, the choice between activities, you know, there's plenty of research to show that choice lessens the aversiveness of tasks presented um, and ask her which one she wants to do in which order. There is obviously immediate reinforcement for engaging in behavior that you want more of. So literally just asking her to do one practice of a certain thing in order to access either the item that she would prefer to do. So there is a principle in behavior analysis whereby you can reinforce a harder task with an easier task. And then, you know, training mum to help prompt her to get through a harder task with high rates of reinforcement so that she's getting assistance to do it and then you fade that prompt over time. That would be another really good strategy. Then looking at reinforcement strategies of tokens or um, rewards delivered for, you know, certain programs that you're trying to run, um, either media access to some sort of preferred activity or, you know, building up tokens where she would cash that in for doing more tasks. So, you know, lots of different things there. And then, of course, having the greatest party on earth, if that's what she likes, like (laughs) attention and tickles from mum and all the great stuff what I call like the light switch on approach. That is like when she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, the sun shines in her, the light shines on her. And when she's not, you know, the, the light really dims down. So, you know, a behavior is called differential reinforcement, like providing high rates of praise, attention and all those things where she's doing what she's supposed to be doing. And then I guess, you know, the other thing is then looking at the difficulty of the task that you're asking her to do and making sure that it's, it's not too hard for her. It's not that the response effort is not so high that it causes her to, you know, to refuse to do the work. Okay. Well, I, I definitely have to uh, agree with the choice aspect because that actually worked with Lena very well. Um, we just got those big dice, you know, the foam ones. You've probably seen those. Yeah. And we just added on there an activity, and then her little favorite toy, the sensory toy. And so she would roll the dice. It's sort of that Vegas effect. Like she would roll the dice, and depending on whatever it came about, that's what she would get. So I guess it's somewhat of a choice. Not quite, but somewhat, right? Yeah, that's and a really... And really like that. That's a really, really good strategy. It's um, very behavioral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I just read it on a... Uh, it, th- that's what they use, the psychology they use in Vegas, yeah, it was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, very, why not? As schedules of reinforcement. And yeah, if you ever go um, into in a casino and watch people pressing buttons on poker machines, yep, that's a, behavior, a behavioralist somewhere behind the scenes writing those schedules of reinforcement. That So yeah, that's a very good strategy is to use a variable ratio of reinforcement. So to sometimes get her to do one task to roll the dice and then select something she wants to do. So like either a, a therapist choice or her choice. And so, yeah, it's definitely a behavioral strategy to reduce the aversiveness of someone always telling you what you should do. So you were talking about immediate reinforcement, mm. you know. I really like to use a timer in my sessions for anything and everything. So an activity might be okay, you get to play with the sensory toy or whatever and, you know, for two minutes. And when the timer goes off, then we engage in something else. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to a little bit about schedules of reinforcement? Because most of us, at least in OT, are pretty, you know, just reinforced. We tend to actually delay reinforcement, I would say. Yeah, well, it's, 
you know, so individualised to the student. But if we just talk a little mm-hmm. bit about what reinforcement is, because that's a, a very specific term that comes from okay. um, ABA. Um, and we do have very specific definitions for reasons because they, it really it means something. You know, you could call it reward. That's another way. But generally what reinforcement is, is, you know, a process whereby something that has consistently been provided after a behaviour, some sort of change in the environment has resulted either in a behaviour increasing or reducing. So we know that that consequence is functioning as a reinforcer because many times if you're working with a student and assuming that something is reinforcing to them but, you know, the behaviour is not improving, then, you know, that would be one thing to uh, indicate that perhaps that thing is not a reinforcer or a reward for that student it's not the only reason but it's a good place to start it should be the first place to start like do you have anything that you're providing after you're asking a student to do something for you that might increase their ability to do that behavior again so yeah, you asked me there the the different types of reinforcement, and I think earlier you indicated you asked a really good question. You know, delivering something like a a token or an activity or praise or anything, adding something. A behavior analyst would call that a positive reinforcer. You're actually adding something to the environment, and then removing something can also function as a reinforcer. So you talked there a little bit about a break timer accessing a preferred period of time sometimes it may be the activity that you're doing in those two minutes that's reinforcing or it could just be the break from work and a behavior analyst will call that negative reinforcement so whereby there is relief you do something for a period of time and you get relief that shows up in life every single day you know you have an itch and you scratch it or you you have a pain and you move and the pain gets better there's an alarm going off and you stop it So while we can, you know, reinforce behavior with positive things like adding things, we can also improve behavior or increase behavior by removing the demand and having a break. So yeah, so that that two minutes there could be functioning as, you know, negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement. So then would a visual schedule help with that? So she kind of knows when there is negative reinforcement or relief? Yeah, I guess one of the things to do firstly is to really, you, you know the student very, very well, so um, you kind of assessed already that she has items that potentially could function as reinforcers. Um, so you already mm-hmm. have something that, that you can deliver there contingent on reinforcement. You asked me a question and I went completely off track there to talk about schedules of reinforcement. So if you have items that she, you really know she likes and you've already talked about putting it in a box, so you're already doing your own building motivation there by depriving her of those things and keeping them for your session and pairing yourself with the most preferred reinforcers. That's another way of getting, you know, really good instruction is making sure that you're the one that has control over those things and that you're paired with all the fun stuff. So, you know, then we look at schedules of reinforcement. Well, if this is a schedule of reinforcement is how frequently you allow the break or provide the tangible reinforcer to the student. And that's really dependent on the student. So there are some students that have so many interruptive and challenging behaviours that like, for instance, uh, something that a behaviour analyst would call like a, a DRO interval, which is a period of time whereby you do work 
and then you you know access a break or or some preferred item some students just aren't capable of working over time without you know reinforcing behavior intermittently so there's some students that literally I have kids that I work with and they will do one to two things for me before accessing you know like a 30 second break and lots of praise and tickles and and their most preferred items whereas then I work with other students that have been working for long periods of time and can do like 15 to 20 minutes of work before they access a break but we do that because it's for the absence of interruptive behaviors So, you know, if you have a student that is, you ask them to do something and they, you know, bite themselves or hit their mother or something, you know, the first thing to look at is the the activity itself, but then what schedule of reinforcement are you, you know, rewarding behavior on and can you get enough behavior to reinforce, you know, one, more than one repetition of that behavior in a row. And if you have such high rate behavior that it's, interspersed throughout the session then you know that's a really good indicator that it's potentially too hard you need to go back and get some success with easier behaviors and so yeah it's it's obviously very difficult to advise everybody on what to do with every student but you know the general level of demand is high you know high rates of challenging behavior then to get instructional really good relationship with a student is to go back to tasks that are super easy for them and build upon that in the absence of those you know challenging behaviors so if you have a student that you've been working with individually like I had been working with Lena and then we had to go into this virtual setting the environment changed so it sounds like what I would need to do is sort of go back up a bit you know back down on on my demands and sort of re-establish the relationship of me being the giver of good things and lowering the demands because now the environment has changed that's absolutely yeah very very good feedback there and so that's sort of what we did but as I said as, as we increased the demands she did start displaying more behaviors but um one of the things she was doing so you know I told you she was turning the video off so mum put the computer a little higher up so she couldn't mm-hmm. reach it. Yeah. Because she would either, either turn, you know, close it or turn it off. So that was one strategy we use. So then what she started doing, she's actually quite clever because she started walking off. She was like, fine, if I can't reach the computer, I'm just going to walk off. Yeah. So um, we actually did, we just created boundaries And so I will say for OTs that, you know, we're very resourceful, very creative, definitely. And the speech therapist and I were working together at this point. And what we did is just put a blanket. And as long as she stayed on that blanket during the session, she got to play with her favorite sensory toys. You mean after the session or or in her break? No, during the therapy session. Right, right. She had to sit stay on the blanket and then do, you know, we'd roll the dice and she got to do one activity or two. And the only way she could access the toys was to stay on the blanket. Yeah, right. Yeah. After. So I think creating boundaries is so important on virtual learning. Yeah. If you can't do it and, you know, because you're not there in person, I think that's one of the hardest things, unless you have some other strategies. Yeah, 
again, it's so individualized with student, right? I mean, depending yeah. on what work you're doing with them, um, you know, at least the work that I do, even with children on the spectrum virtually, they need to be, you know, really attending well and, you know, be able to maintain eye contact and, um, you know, and follow instructions really, really well. And so, you know, what I always do when I'm working virtually is to make sure that that behaviour is dealt with before we go on to too much work. So getting, you know, reinforcing, looking at the screen, um, sitting with their hands folded and, you know, answering simple questions if they're verbal or if they're nonverbal, you know, engaging in nonverbal gestures like virtual high fives and things like that to build what we call instructional control, but like compliance, if you like in a really fun way so like you know the first thing I always do not just with kids on the spectrum actually but when I first start a session is okay you know let's get super ready for this session give me a high five unbelievable you know look at me amazing show me those folded hands bang you know you're on break Um, so you get this momentum of high rates of following instructions in order to access their break when you get kids that are, and don't get me wrong, we get them too, is like, you know, closing the screen or even, and this is not just kids on the spectrum, oh, you know, I accidentally pressed the mute button. <laughs> oh, my headphones are not working. Um, <laughs> you know, that really uh, requires like education of the environment and like having mum there to check in with you on you know what's occurring in the environment and then you know prompting the child back to work I love the you know manipulating the environment so those things are not easy it requires a response effort obviously you can't restrain a child in a chair you have to reinforce them for staying and engaging and yeah it can be really challenging but yeah if that was working for you like building instructional control because it was very clear where she had to be if that was working for you I I can say whatever whatever works is you know is good but you know long-term building uh, a relationship with a student where they will follow your directions and comply over a screen you know holds him in great stead for coming back off a screen as well and I guess the other thing that came up for me there too is don't forget that you talked really well about that change in environment very frequently, even if students are very good in a, you know, a therapy environment, their behaviour at home is under very different schedules of reinforcement. You know, like frequently they have free access to reinforcers or, you know, preferred items. They don't have to follow instructions on the first presentation of the instruction. They often run away. So, you know, this is an environment that they're probably used to having a lot more freedom. And, you know, depending on the parent, there's a lot less success at home in following instructions and being compliant. So you're also, you know, you're also dealing with that, what we would call sort of behavioural contrast, which is a different, you know, schedule of reinforcement. It's kind of like at work you get paid, you know, $1,000 a week or something, but at home these students are probably getting paid a million dollars a week effectively, you know. And so all of a sudden you say, no, now you have to work for $1,000 a week and they, you know, they don't like it. It's like, you know, they're getting paid a lot less for getting what they would normally get. So, yeah, that, that what you were talking about there in changing environment is so important to look at. Oh, how do we create an environment where they're not just, you know, getting things for free all the time and, um, and all of a sudden they're more likely, building that motivation is about slowly creating an environment where they don't have free access to things all the time. So, you know, it's the first thing. It's really assessing that environment, 
parent interview, asking them what they normally do in that type of occurrence when they get, because, you know, work refusal over a screen, that's not the only time that student is going to be engaging in work refusal. You know, it may be that she's refusing to brush her teeth, she's refusing to come to the breakfast table. So helping a parent develop strategies so that they're following through on what you're doing as well outside of session is so important. I love it. Love it. Um, Mandy, the whole, you know, when I was thinking of the environment, I was thinking more tangible, right? Like items. But you really brought it to my attention where you need to change the reinforcing environment too. Yeah. Um, That was such a good point. I never thought of that because you're right. They're getting access to reinforcement at a very low response rate at home. And then now you're in the home, essentially via telehealth, and you're telling them to do all this to get the same thing. Oh, so yes. what a brilliant point. Thank you for that. So right. You know, I've had kids, verbal kids, where I have, you know, perfect instructional, you know, perfect compliance in the session, you know, in our clinic. And then we go home and you just get these, you know, they open the door and then there's two big eyes going, oh, no. Like now she's in the home environment and um, often if I'm sure there are a lot of professionals there that have been in the home environment as well. You know, what happens at home is often very challenging for parents and they're kind of embarrassed and really challenged by, you know, the way that kids behave at home. And so, you know, really taking that on up front, I know it's very hard, particularly for, you know, sometimes, Aditi, when you tell me you have 50 minutes a week or something, you know, I just want to, yeah. you know, pull my own hair out um, <laughs> because building that, you know, parent engagement and having them on board and, having them, you know, uh, not reinforce behaviour behind the scenes or or often what will happen I've found with parents is they're so, they're like, oh, we, you know, the session has to be successful. Like, you know, they're, they're so time pressured and they want to get something out of the session and, you know, they're like, if you do this for me, I will give you this. That's very frequently what happens, which, you know, we kind of, I look at that kind of like bribery, like, you know, like, yeah. here's the thing and you'll get it if you do this to me. That's a really bad relationship to build with a student. It's like, first we do this, then you get that, not sort of bribery the other way around, which is you'll get this if you do that. It's just a matter of cha- right. changing the contingency there. But, yeah, so, like, having a parent that's up for that and, like, having consultation with them to say, look, this is what could occur. Like, she may run away from the room and I'm going to ask you through, you know, holding a thumbs up or, like, you know, thumb to the left to go and get her gently and bring her back to this teaching environment and let me instruct her and you're going to block the door to stop her leaving if it's safe to do that. And we're slowly going to reinforce her for coming back and engaging in the environment, like providing parent consultation like that. And, you know, reinforcing the parent when they get it right and and giving them feedback when they are challenged is so important to this whole process. So, I'm so proud of you, Mandy. I didn't have to push the pause button. You addressed the bribery and reinforcement question all by yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I answered your question on schedules of reinforcement. And, you know, sitting next to me uh, on this table is a book by Skinner and it's about I'll put it in inches for you guys, you know, three inches high on schedule, on schedules of reinforcement. But, you know, in summary, it's basically, you know, what we call if you're going to continuously reinforce the behavior, it would be, you know, like one, the student does one thing for you and then, you know, you immediately reinforce that behavior with, you know, a lolly or some time with her sensory toys. Over time, you know, if you are going to 
increase the amount of work and uh, either reduce the reinforcement or keep the reinforcement the same for more work, you know, you might do, say, two to three things before reinforcing and you might reinforce, yeah, every second or third response. And that's what's that's what you're talking about when you're going to a casino is that in a casino it might be something like I think I remember reading you know the schedules of reinforcement are somewhere between you know every on a poker machine is that what you would call them there I think so yeah (laughs) Uh, that's what we call them here but like between every 25 and you know 75 presses of that button you know you might be given a prize of some sort and there are don't think you can just go and count the responses and hold out in hope that you're going to get rewarded because they have varying schedules of reinforcers depending on the you know the actual game some of them are really complex don't I have actually tried to count before to see like what their schedule of reinforcement is not very successfully otherwise I would yeah we have plenty of money by now but um but yeah that schedule of reinforcement is really important because the main reason is uh first of all you can't get a lot of work done if you're reinforcing every single behavior obviously but second of all what we know from what Skinner found in all of his work is that you actually start to get much higher rates of learning when the student can't predict when the reinforcer is coming. And so, you know, with variable schedules of reinforcement, it's less obvious to see when the reinforcer is coming. And uh, that makes, yeah, the rate of work tend to be higher. And so over time, even with my, you know, my really challenged little students, just one of them now, he's been on continuous reinforcement for quite a few months. We've just been able to move him to a variable ratio of reinforcement. So between every two and four responses that he does for us. And like he has just gone so beautifully. His rate of engagement has increased and he's working harder for the, what he was getting previously. Getting students to be able to do more work for either the same or less reinforcement over time is about, you know, what schedule of reinforcement you're providing. Oh my gosh, there's so much there. I don't even know where to go. There's so much good information there. But I just want to add one thing. Mm. I think reducing the expectation means greater possibility of success, which in in itself is a huge reinforcer intrinsically for that client or student too. So I really love those strategies. Thank you so much, Mandy, for explaining all that. We have covered a lot. I think we could have done a whole episode on schedules of reinforcement and we may have to do that. But I do want to talk about what we're talking about next week, which is skin picking, um, pulling, biting, all those habitual behaviors. That's what we will be discussing. And we will be doing a case study specifically on a student who is skin picking and it's gotten to the point where, you know, it's very injurious to them and uh, what sort of strategies we can use to address that. So that will be definitely interesting episode. And I'd like to leave with a little shout out again to our deeper dive that's coming up on telehealthshare.com. Please register for it. Um, It is all about what we discussed here today, but a lot more on addressing challenging behaviors on telehealth. It's on April 20th, once again. And then look for uh, the link to the complimentary book for OT Month. 
It's an ebook on 20 tips to increase student engagement on telehealth. It will cover some of these principles we've talked about today, but a lot more, including the infamous Vegas effect, rolling the dice, unboxing, video modeling, uh, using balloons, et cetera, et cetera, and how to increase student engagement overall. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Remember, the most valuable resource we have is each other. And without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspective. So hashtag collaboration over competition. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And hooroo from Down Under.